This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Find some sort of differentiation point that um, makes you slightly different than what everybody else is doing. So whether if that is YouTube, like, are you doing something that's different than what everybody's doing, but still kind of like also commercially viable, right? I think the true genius happens when you innovate in the lane that's already there. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. We're exploring some new territory on the show today, and we're getting back into the realm of music, but maybe not in the way that you'd think. Back in September of 2018, my other podcast, Upside, was listed in a Fortune article recognizing some of the best business podcasts. I tweeted about it, as you do with big news, and somehow that got the attention of a guy on Twitter named Mick who said congrats and called out the fact that we're both from Ohio. So I looked at his bio, which reads, your favorite band's favorite DJ. And not only that, but it says he's an investor in a couple well-known startups, including Anchor, which was acquired by Spotify, Local Lure, and Wink. It seemed like a really interesting combination of interests. And so as you do on the internet, I dug deeper into the rabbit hole. Mick is the stage name for Mick Batiski, formerly known as Mick Boogie. Mick lives in Brooklyn now, but has done a ton of international traveling for gigs from New York and LA to Davos and Cannes and London and Tokyo. Now, listen to some of these names that Mick has DJed for. He spun private events for celebrities, brands, and tech companies, including Bravo, Entertainment Weekly, Fast Company, Hillary Clinton, HBO, Instagram, Jay-Z, Will Smith, Jimmy Kimmel, LeBron James, Michelle Obama, NBC, Prince, Rihanna, Samsung, Spike Lee, Spotify, Steph Curry, Twitter, and Vanity Fair. And that's just an abbreviated list of companies and names that I've pulled here. But he's also a fashion influencer with clients like Adidas, Bergdorf Goodman, Coach, Esquire Magazine, Kanye West, Nike, Ralph Lauren, and W Magazine. And it all started for Mick in Youngstown, Ohio, playing the drums. When I went away to college, I was like, I can't bring drums to a dorm room. So I had a Michael Jordan rookie card, sold it, uh, you know, <laughs> for 600 bucks, found two used technique turntables in the one ads in a newspaper, bought them, and life changed. That turntable was the beginning of Mick's DJing career. Not only does he do private events for some of the big names you just heard, but he releases his own mixtapes as well. For the last 10 years, Mick has been releasing these incredible summertime mixtapes with DJ Jazzy Jeff around the 4th of July. And judging from this year's mix and the intro from Michael Rappaport, who is an actor in one of my favorite TV shows, Atypical, it must have been a little bit late this year. DJ Jazzy Jeff and Mick Boogie. Oh, sorry. Just Mick, right? Mick, I can't call you Boogie. You bald DJ Jazzy Jeff and Mick the 4th of July annual summertime mix is late. What's the problem, guys? Uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff, you, you caught COVID? Is, is that what the f- problem is? Uh, Mick Boogie? Oh, sorry. Just Mick? Come on, guys. The summer doesn't start until the annual summertime mix by DJ Jazzy Jeff and Mick drops. When are you guys going to let me do the intro? Here it is. A beat fight. Over the last few years, Mick has gotten into startup investing and a 2018 profile in Inc. Magazine called him a unique combination of Gary Vaynerchuk and Quest Love. So in this episode, we talk about the early days of being a DJ, running a college radio station, how Mick thinks about building relationships, and why his emphasis on brand has helped him build his multi-hyphenate career. 
I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or on Instagram at jklaus, or you can join our new private Facebook group by searching Creative Elements Listeners on Facebook. I do want to let you know that this interview does include some strong language, so if you're around children, you might want to wait until you're alone to listen to this interview. All right, let's dive in and hear from Mick. I grew up in um, Youngstown, Ohio, not too far from, from where you're at over there in Columbus. And I grew up uh, coming of age of music in the 90s, where it still was my favorite, to this day, my favorite era of music. And I distinctly remember my mom had lots of vinyl records. My grandma had lots of vinyl records. I didn't know anything about DJing at the time, but I knew I enjoyed playing them. Even as a kindergartner, I had a little case of like 45s and I couldn't even read, but my mom wrote an M on like one of them and I knew it was like my record. So I distinctively had these touch points of like music my whole life. And then I played drums and I played piano. And at some point in high school, all of that kind of synthesized into like one thing. And I was like, I could come home from school and put my Walkman on at the time, which became my Discman and uh, listen to everything from like Tribe and NWA to like Beastie Boys and Pearl Jam and Nirvana. And I would play my drums to all of that stuff. And um, I wish everybody could see the video you're seeing because you're seeing my hands and <laughs> the, the, the air drums. But, you know, that kind of like taught me rhythm based on um, pre-recorded music that I loved. And then, it, which is different than rhythm playing and like I played in like symphonic band and jazz band and all of that shit. And that was cool too. When I was in school growing up doing like band and symphonic band, that was not the cool thing to be doing. Was that like a cool thing that people were like, oh man, I wish I could be like Mick when you're in high school playing around with these no, things? No, hell no. Like, well, in my high school, the band was 280 people. So it was less horrible, I'll just say that, than in most schools where it's like 30 kids, right? Mm-hmm. But it was still pretty bad. I was a nerd in high school. I was like super overweight. I was like smart, but not like smart enough to like claim super nerd level. But my, my brain worked on that level, but I still wanted to be kind of cool, but I wasn't cool enough to be friends with the cool kids. I wasn't athletic enough to actually play sports. Like I was always like one of the first people chosen at recess for basketball, but like I was never like in shape enough to be like actually on the team. So I was like the proverbial, like in the middle kid, which looking back on it, I mean, it's actually awesome because it informed a lot of how I live my life. I live my life now, like the nexus of a whole bunch of different things. Maybe I don't own one of them to the level that I should, but I do think a lot of my success has happened because I'm able to reach to like different worlds. As a kid though, it pretty much fucking sucks because like you're just like, the cool people already think you have something to do so they don't invite you to the party, but the nerd people think you're all going to the party so they don't invite you to like the mathathon. I'm making that up. And then like, you know, like you don't want to go back to band again. So it was a very weird upbringing and I kind of fell on my refuge in music. So I would go home and listen to my cassette singles and my CD singles. And I had a DJ mind state even back then before I knew what DJing was. So if everybody went and bought, went to the mall and bought a single of like a, um, a song i'm making this up like a beastie boy song like when check your head came out i would go to like the obscure record store and buy the european import cd single that had mm-hmm. the remix from sweden that like no and this is pre-internet and all that but like that would get me like ever so and, and nobody gave a fuck bro like at all but i care so people be like <laughs> did you hear check your head i'm like man it's okay but like did you hear the remix that the guy from sweden you know and that but that to me was me thinking like how i think now way back then how did that become something that you were aware of existed? Like, how did you know that, oh, they're doing different remixes of this in different countries and I'm going to go find that? Um, magazines. Because um, the internet was just starting, right? And so you would get like, we had Barnes & Noble had just come to Youngstown and we had another uh, bookstore called, uh, it was actually way better than Barnes & Noble, but it was like a chain. It was called Little Professor. Hmm. And I don't know if that was like an Ohio thing. I have no idea what it was. But it was a pretty big bookstore. And they had magazines that would not just like Rolling Stone and Spin and Vibe. They would have like obscure New York stuff. They would get like one of them. And then occasionally they would get some shit from like Europe that would be like triple the price because they had to import it. It'd be like seventeen ninety nine for like a magazine. But it was awesome because they would have like all like the dance charts and the hip hop charts from all these foreign countries. And they would have like reviews of albums. Sometimes they weren't even out yet in America. It was just, it was the internet before there was the internet. You know, totally. it was really cool. And then I went from that into doing college radio when I went to John Carroll in Cleveland. And that too was like an interesting version of like getting things early because college radio at the time was a super relevant pipeline for music. It was really the only pipeline. It was 
what blogs were 10 years ago and what playlists are now. It was like we broke the records. Commercial radio never broke records, very rarely. College radio broke all the records in every genre. Why is that? Is that just because you have the control to put on air whatever you want to put on air? You have the control to put on what you want to put on. You don't have to worry about consumers. You just have to worry about connoisseurs, right? So you don't have to worry about we need to keep the average person listening because we need to have this commercial for a car or for a bed bugs or whatever, to, you know, you know, all this horrible commercial radio is the worst commercials ever. You know, there's a reason those stations play those songs 40, 50 times a day. There's like a science to that. And it's true. Like people like me became a DJ because I didn't give a fuck about hearing the same Nelly song 50 times in an hour in 2003. But most people did like, you know, there's a reason we were DJs and there were the reason people came to my parties and there were reason people bought my mixtapes is because they wanted that stuff. Right now it's a little bit easier to have access to like newer and cooler stuff. So people are a little bit more well-trained to expect better things. But what I learned was that like, you know, it's a basic like marketing phenomenon. You can't go over people's heads, you know, from a marketing standpoint, from an advertising standpoint, from a music programming standpoint, fashion, you name it. Uh, it's the same formula. And so you kind of like have to find a way to appeal towards the common denominator while still being upscale and affluent and ambitious too. And that's how, that's been like the secret for me. It's like, you got to stay relevant to everybody, but also make people want to move in the direction that you're moving, but you can't go too far. You can't, you know, I, I know a lot of people who like try to appeal to like the common denominator person and they're doing all these Instagram ads with like Lamborghinis and shit. And it's like, bro, that's not it's too, great for too you. inaccessible. That's too inaccessible. Like for me, I, I keep my branding has always been very simple of like, I'm a DJ, I'm a dad, I do entrepreneurial stuff. You see the best of my life. You see, sometimes you see the worst of my life, but I don't really hide the aspects of my stuff. I don't ever want to have a brand that's inauthentic. Before we dig deeper into Mick's DJ career, I want to look a little bit deeper into how he got there in the first place. Because when we left off with his story, he was in college and had just bought his first turntable. And I don't know many people who would think of college as the path to becoming a professional DJ. I thought I was going to do a finance degree first and foremost. That lasted about a semester. I was like, no, these are these numbers are not my friends. We're not going to do that. And then I switched to marketing and I felt like a real affinity for it. It didn't involve a lot of work for me to do that because it was how my brain already worked. It was just tightening it up and heightening it slightly. I even remember back in high school doing a, yeah, like there was like some career thing we did like our junior year. We had to go interview like a professional and I interviewed the head of PR at the time for um, Edward DiBarlo. And like, you know, they like all the malls and the 49ers and all that stuff. And she was kind enough to give me an interview. And I didn't even, I don't know what made me choose that at the time to be completely honest with you. But when I look back at it, my interest in the marketing side definitely had a genesis even back to high school, if not earlier. And then in college, when I switched to the marketing degree, that opened my eyes to a lot of things. I do think looking back in hindsight and retrospect, having marketing knowledge coming into my brain while I was creating a personal brand that we didn't call it that then uh, for my DJ career. I think it was like having two parallel trains going on the same tracks, but I didn't, I didn't realize it at the time and they were feeding into each other. So I was getting real life experience in what I was learning in class, but it felt more like an extracurricular and my extracurricular stuff was doing better than most people's extracurricular stuff because I was getting it reinforced with what I was learning. And then I graduated and then nine 11 happened so I was like, well, this seems like a good time to just keep DJing a little bit longer rather than get a real job because the world was kind of like fucked up at the time. Not too different than what we're going through right now. Like these kids are going to come out of school this year and they're going to enter a, a transformed world. But for me, I went to grad school, continued to fortify the knowledge of through marketing, I got an MBA in marketing of what I had already learned while putting all that energy and time back into my craft because I was using my craft to fund grad school. So I took a long time. And then I finished that with a lot of education and a lot of real world experience. And I don't think my life would have worked out the way it did if those things weren't always running parallel. So you were making good enough money DJing to pay for your grad school. Yeah. What was the thought process in your head to say, I'm going to double down on my education versus saying, I'm going for this right now and I'm just going to DJ and, and make my living doing this? I had the time and the, and the luxury to do it because DJing at the time, it wasn't like now where my life has kind of become this like 360 thing at the time. I was 22, 23 in Cleveland in the mid 2000s. There just wasn't a lot of uh, other things to do. If I wasn't going to DJ like at night for a couple hours, I didn't have like interviews during the day. I didn't have, there was no social media. There wasn't like, I wasn't working on other 
things like I'm working on now. I didn't have like a kid. Well, you know, there was like, I had nothing to do. Like I didn't, it's not like now where I work with these brands and I'm like, it's like so much relationship maintenance and going to lunches and like I run my life now, like a real business. There's like meetings and lunches and, and networking and, and flights. And I, I didn't have any of that then. I just had two or three gigs a week. Right. And that's, and then I prep for them for like a half hour. So I had plenty of time. The barrier to me getting my work done was very, very low. So it just seemed like a really great time. Plus, I'm a, I was always a big education person. You know, I believe I, I tell my kid this every day. He's only four and a half. But like, tell him, like, you're going to go to Harvard one day. I have a four or five size Harvard sweatshirt that I would, you know, give to him maybe on his birthday. Be like, this is, you know, who knows if he really goes there? Who knows if the shit even exists? But like, I set that tone yeah. for him because my grandparents set that tone for me. And I'm not saying I'm going to be like a helicopter dad, like live your life, do what you want. Within reason, I will, of course, correct the fuck out of you, though, if you go way left. <laughs> but I'm very big in like empowering him to make, you know, even even at four. Like, and I let him do what he wants as long as he can explain to me why he's doing it. And that's what my grandparents and my parents did for me. And it worked out. If my parents didn't let me listen to like NWA in sixth grade and try to like shelter me, that'd be crazy. My life might not be who I am right now. I bought so many of my first tapes and CDs that inspired me to do this because my grandparents, they, they used to live in Florida. They're happy years. So I'd go down to Florida for a month at a time and I'd get to, to do all the shit my mom would never let me do. My grandparents would just drop me off at the mall for three hours and they had bikes and I would ride really far and go to like these obscure record stores. I could never do that like where we lived in Ohio. They gave me the autonomy to do it. But if I fucked up once, then it was done. After the break, Mick talks about leaving his small town of Youngstown, Ohio, and taking his DJ career to New York right after this. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash j. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash j and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash creator. Welcome back to Creative Elements. Throughout his time in college, Mick had been doing gigs as a DJ while also running his college radio station, but it didn't take long for Mick to decide that being a DJ from Ohio, only DJing in Ohio, wasn't thinking big enough. 
right after grad school. I was like doing a, everything you could possibly do in Ohio. I was actually in Columbus a lot doing stuff too. I did all the Cavs games. I did all the bronze early stuff. I did all the rock and roll hall of fame stuff. Anything you could do in Ohio. I did it. And I did it a lot. I did it too much. And I got to that point where I was like, let's see if we can move this somewhere else. Right. Let's give it, let's give this a shot because you have one chance to really try to do it. And so I leveraged every single relationship I had ever to get myself to New York. And um, I said, if it fails, I can either get a real job here using my education. I can get it, go back to Ohio and get a real job and probably have a higher quality of life or go somewhere else. But I had a plan B and C. So I was like, there's never going to be a better time. My stock was like really high at the time for like Ohio stock. It wasn't going to get better than that. So I was like, I might as well just do this right now. How did that stuff happen? I mean, I know that you're in Cleveland, you're you're like making a name for yourself there. When you say, I did all the LeBron stuff, I did all the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame stuff. How do those things come to be? And what does that actually look like for people who aren't super familiar with uh, the DJing world? Sure. Um, well, it's not like now where you, there's DJs on like fucking Taco Bell commercials and DJs on like children's Saturday morning cartoons and stuff. Like, it just wasn't that sort of world, right? where everybody's a DJ and like, it was like, it was a very rare thing to be a DJ and it was a very hard thing to be a DJ. And it was very hard to access the music, even to, to, to be a DJ at the time using vinyl records and all of that. So you had to like, there was a huge barrier of entry and a huge do paying thing. So that it wasn't now where again, you, everybody knows like a hundred DJs. Then everybody knew like three, maybe five, maybe one. Right. So you had to be really, 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 good at what you did in order to rise to the top. And you had to be like really, really like smart and proficient with how you did your relationships because people weren't really checking for DJs. But because I had a career where I did college radio, then that led to commercial radio. Then I did all like that led to me doing all the bigger nightlife things in Cleveland. And that led to meeting a lot of people. And again, there was no social media. There was no anything at that time. So it was like, Oh, this guy's always at this party. This guy's always at this party. This guy's always at this party. And then when people would come in town for like, has games or like the rock and roll hall of fame inductions or whatever it would be they would always see me because i did all the parties and then that led to like friendships and then that led to relationships and that led to like hey well when you guys do something maybe you could think of me have me be part of it and at the time people were getting less apprehensive with having djs at their events it used to be like people would have like bands or people would have like a jazz band or like a singer and then it became like oh we should have a dj that would be really cool and also what happened at that time was music became more global as far as like what brands are accepting and what consumers are accepting, meaning that hip hop at a public branded event, like before 2000 was like non-existent unless you were playing like top 10 records, like, or like hammer and shit like that. Like in the nineties, I don't even know what it'd been like, what, you know, at that time it'd been like a wedding, but then it became like, Oh, Actually, hip hop became like the number one genre of music in the world. Everybody listened to it. Everybody listened to different variations of it. There were kids that lived it, but your grandma knew who Biggie was, right? And so she didn't know the song, but if she saw Biggie or Tupac on TV, she'd be like, I know who that is. And that's a huge difference. So when that happened, the brand space opened up to DJs, to multicultural music being infused in it. And, and that changed a lot of the game. It sounds like at this stage of the game, this stage of your story, there must have been a ton of people around you who just didn't get it. Like they just didn't know what you were doing. Yeah, like nobody got it. My family didn't get it. I mean, they I mean they said they get it, but like I didn't even get it. My grandparents didn't grasp what I did until I was in the local Youngstown, Ohio newspaper like 10 <laughs> years later, right? And I yeah, did that totally. on, and I did it wearing a uh, I, I came back home and I did and I did it wearing a Yankees hat just to be a dick. <laughs> like I came off <laughs> just just to spite everyone. I did it. I, was, I literally planned the whole shit. It was really horrible. A Brooklyn T-shirt and a Yankees hat. Because I, I, I wanted. I really. I literally did it to be a dick. It was kind of funny though. And people called me out on it. Like all my old Ohio friends were like, "Really?" And I'm like, "Really?" The Indians have always sucked. But <laughs> anyway, yeah, nobody got it. Nobody got it. How do you? How did you deal with that? I mean, everybody wants their parents to like be supporting what they're doing. Everyone wants their friends to be supporting what they're doing. And you're probably facing all this like dude, will you quit screwing around with these freaking vinyl records and just come hang out? Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, what it was, every, it's not that people didn't support it. Like, no, but it's just, it was hard for them to understand it because it was never, it never existed. Right. And so it's not like my, my grandparents and my parents helped buy me drums. My mom was very supportive of helping me get records. Uh, my mom helped me carry records to my college radio show. Like, you know, like all they, everybody supported to the level of their, 
mental aptitude of what was actually going on. But I, you know, behind that, they just had no, it was, it was just like, you know, I'm, I'm, I just turned 42. My kid is going to be into shit in five years that I don't know what it is. And I'm on the pulse of everything, but there's just going to be stuff I don't know. And I'm going to be like, I don't know what you're doing. Right. And so like, it's kind of like that mind state or that framework 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I've always had a vision of where I wanted to go. And I've always put myself a couple years ahead of where I'm at. And I've always put my brand aiming towards where I want to go. So when I was in Cleveland, right, when I was in college, I always positioned myself as a college student slash DJ, not just a college student doing a college radio show, because I just love the culture of what I did. And then when I was in grad school, I was like, oh, I'm going to be like the smart DJ guy in Cleveland. And then when I put all that together, I was going to be like the global DJ who happens to live in Ohio. And I wasn't global at all. But what happened was that got me from Cleveland to Columbus. And that got me from Columbus to Cincinnati. And that got me to Detroit. And then that got me to New York. And that's Chicago. And, and, you know, because I positioned myself that way, the ball started moving down the court that way. And then I moved to New York and I did the same thing. Okay, I moved to New York. I was only doing nightlife. Mixtapes had died. Mixtapes had became illegal and they were doing like raids on DJs and shit. So that stuff kind of died or went online. So I was like, I'm going to be the guy that's doing this, doing that. And then it went from that to I'm going to be the guy that owns the entrepreneurial lane of, of DJs. Like nobody really tried to do that. And five years ago, I made a drastic decision to reframe my whole branding. I kind of had to recheck my authenticity. And I was like, why am I not the coolest guy in this room? Why am I not the coolest guy in this room? Why am I not the coolest guy in that room? Now think about what I'm saying though, thinking about this back to high school, right? I wasn't the smartest kid. I wasn't the nerdiest kid. I wasn't the most talented guy in band. I wasn't the coolest kid. I, you know, I wasn't the most athletic kid. I was in the middle, right? And that was the same thing that I was dealing with now as an adult where you know, I'm doing all these things and I'm a member of all these worlds, but I'm not so much of a member of these worlds that people identify me with these worlds. And I always want to have all those touch points, but I hated, I had to find something to own. So I realized if you look back on my whole life and think about everything we just talked about, all of that led to this. I've always been the smart guy. I've always been entrepreneurial. Uh, looking back to working for my grandpa in high school when he owned a pharmacy, watching my dad have failed business after failed business and watching my grandpa have successful one after successful one, having my own failed newspaper in college, having you know a successful college radio show in college, like blah, blah, blah. You can extrapolate this until today. And that's been the situation for my whole life. And so I kind of like leaned into that and um, it worked out. Over the last several years, Mick has been really intentional about repositioning his brand as not just a DJ, but a DJ who thinks like an entrepreneur. And what I love about Mick's approach is that he's not just intentional about his brand, but he's also aspirational. A lot of people think about positioning after they've already built a certain reputation, but Mick actually leads with the brand and leads with the positioning and then aligns the way that he lives with that positioning. So I asked Mick how he avoids fear or the trap of imposter syndrome when he's thinking aspirationally about his business and brand. I think I still have imposter syndrome certain ways, you know, I don't think that's bad either. I think you have to own it. You know, and I think that we, I have it in multiple ways. I mean, I even have it like in, in, in dating now again, after 10 years, not dating. I'm like, how is this person even talking to me? And then my friends would be like, why would this person like not talk to you? But in my mind, I'm just like, I don't get it. You know, and it's the same thing with music. Like sometimes I'm just like, you know, how am I at this gig? Like, how did this really happen? And, you know, I, I would say the way I've, I've battled that or, or overcame that. I had a good therapist once. I say this all the time. I say this like in every interview. It's the best advice anybody ever gave me. If I was going to fail, like I would have failed a long time ago. I would have failed when they told me I couldn't get a college radio show. I would have failed when I was in grad school trying to be a DJ and pay for it from fucking DJ and when nobody was a DJ. I would have failed when I moved to New York with like nothing, but I was just an Ohio guy trying to like make it big in like the biggest city in the world. I never failed. I failed micro. I never failed macro. And then even as we've moved on from there, it's like every day I fail. I failed five times today, but like in the whole, that's why I'm not even worried too much about this virus thing. Like kids college fund. Well, we're going to be pulling from that. And like retirement, we're going to be pulling from that. Cause like, you know, I didn't save six months of nobody saves. Like they say like save a couple months. Nobody said this shit, but I will be fine long game because if I was going to fail, like I totally would have failed. Now you could also argue, am I saying that, because I know in retrospect I haven't, or is saying that actually transforming how you move moving forward. Now that I know that that's kind of been the pattern for my whole life, has that changed how I move? Has that changed the energy of people that have come into my life to help me? Has that changed the decisions I've made and the creativity I've made? You could, I think both things of that, of that have happened. So knowing that, I think that 
mindset allows me to make bolder decisions or sometimes make more conservative decisions, you kind of create your own destiny in that way. I do think that because I believe that ultimately I won't fail in the big way, it enables me to drive the car down that road. And I think if I looked at like my life as a series of micro failures versus a series of macro wins, I would drive slower and choppier. And I don't. I drive full speed ahead with bumps. When we come back, Nick and I talk about how he thinks about building relationships and how he's gotten to work with those A-list celebrities, big brands, and more. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Welcome back to Creative Elements and my conversation with Mick. I told you in the intro that Mick has spun events for Jay-Z, LeBron James, Michelle Obama, and a whole host of other big names that can make your head spin. Pun very much intended. Obviously, just about all of us would love to work with brands and celebrities like that. So I asked Mick how he gets those opportunities. It's all relationships and it's all, I mean, talent, talent is number one. You can't suck, but you don't actually have to be great. You just have to be good. And this is another thing I learned in high school. I would rather be the guy getting all B's and going home and playing my drums and going and working for my grandpa rather than be the person getting A's. Same thing in college. I'd rather get the B's have my college radio show, go do the parties at night. And when I said go do the parties, I was never a partier. I just recently became a person who drinks way too much wine like two years ago. Like I never was a partier. I'm still not a partier. I'm still probably the least happy person in a club to this day, <laughs> even though I'm the one getting paid. But for me, it was more like an artistic expression thing. So I was like, I would rather be the guy making the B and doing all this other stuff rather than being the person making the A and being very singularly focused. Right now we celebrate that and we call us like multi-hyphenates back then i was just like a fuck up like why what do you mean <laughs> what do you mean what do you mean you didn't study for calculus i'm like because i have enough brains to get a b i'd rather go out in the world and like study the life right and so when i look at my career it's kind of the same thing in that like I, i've told the story a million times but it's, it's so important and it's so timely to really so many different industries right because everybody's doing their creative hustles now and everybody's doing these things and one thing i love when people say is like literally just do your shit and put it out in the world if you keep waiting and waiting and waiting no one's ever going to hear it and it was i knew so many djs in ohio and even now in new york who they're way better than me and i don't mean necessarily better at me than like reading a crowd and playing songs so there's people better than me than that too and I don't mean DJs that are way better than me as far as like the song selection they have, because there's definitely DJs better than that because they spend more time like looking for songs and stuff. But 
just from a technical standpoint, I knew DJs that could scratch with their toes and take their shirt off while they're spinning around and going like all, you can watch all those old YouTube videos. I can't do any of that stuff, but like they're broke. Right. And they're working a nine to five and nobody ever hears them. So it's like, it's so great that you could do that stuff. Cool. And if that's, if you're, if it's truly just about that for you and you want to be able to do that, that's awesome. I wish I still had that pure unadulterated love for it. And I do like at times, obviously, but my thing was always like, cool. I'm going to be the friendliest DJ you ever meet. I'm going to be the most marketable DJ you ever meet. I'm going to be the guy that actually I'll play your request. If you're not a fucking dick, like if you're nice and it fits in the context of what I'm doing, I'll play it because who knows who you are, man? Like, first of all, like, you know, I'm not going to change course of what I'm doing to play your request, but like most DJs hate requests. I'll play it because what if your dad is the Sultan of Sudan, which isn't even a Sudan doesn't even have sultans. It's just <laughs> it's like a nice alliteration, right? Yeah. Don't make that the title of this of this podcast. But <laughs> but you know, I've met so many amazing people because whereas people think there should be this, this barrier because I'm DJing, I'm like, hey, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do that for you. Oh, cool. Oh, sure. What are you drinking? Oh, cool. Let's let's do a shot. Like you know, just being human is is has been a huge aspect to, to to my career, and I put the human aspect first, and that's where my opportunities happen. So so to go back to your question, it's like. Yeah, the DJing is cool. The music's good, whatever. The marketing is good, blah, blah, blah. But like when I, you know, I'm friends with more of my clients than not friends with more of my clients, even if they didn't start off that way. I had a Christmas party at my house this year. Half the people in the house had cut me a check. I didn't look at them as check cutters. You know, when I had a baby shower years ago, when my son was born, half those people were clients or at one point or future clients, but it was never looked at that way. And so for me, that's what I do. I just really try to like keep the human aspect of it first. And that's the opening doors aspect for me because everyone's a DJ. Marketing is much easier now with social, but can you be a good person? Can you be a human? Can you remember to like, you know, and I fuck this up all the time too. Like I forget people's birthdays and stuff, but like I try, I do the best I can and it seems to be good enough. I want to double click on that a little bit because Totally agree. And everything that's worked for me has been based on relationships too. But what people I think don't realize or don't hear when someone says it's all about relationships, they think it's, okay, well, how do I run into Jay-Z to start that relationship? And they're missing the point. It's not about, you know, you have to have a relationship with this big name. It's relationships with people. And then eventually you just meet more people. And I think also people overshoot, like Jay-Z doesn't even know who I am. Like I did some parties from back in the day. Like he's seen my name on things. He's been at parties I've done since I've done events for him. You don't need to know him. That'd be nice. I wish I did. You know, I mean, he probably would remember the parties. He might remember there was like somebody that looked like me at those parties if he enjoyed the music, right? He's not going to, but he, you know, that's not where I'm at. Like I don't have a life where like I could call somebody like that. I mean, certain people I do, like I saw LeBron at, over Christmas in LA and it was like, you, we started talking like it was 10 years ago. He's a different breed. That guy's a, a mental maniacal genius. Like he remembers everything. He remembers plays from high school. So like you can't, I can't even chalk that up to me being memorable. But for the most part, you know, I, I got to do an event for Michelle Obama because I made friends with the right people who made friends with the right people. And then I went in there and, I, you know, did a good job. She's not remembering that, but it doesn't matter, right? It, nobody, it, does, it matters as I did it. It matters as I did it because of, A, I put the time in for my talent and I put the time in for my relationships and that led to that opportunity. And so I think the way I do it works really well for me. Now, other people, it won't work as well for them, but for me, it's like, I know that my way of doing business is the exact way I'm supposed to do business to succeed and it's applicable to other entities. One last question on this, and then we're going to get into some of the investments you've made and how you segued into tech a little bit. But let's say that there's another DJ coming up in Youngstown, or even somebody that's just doing some type of creative work uh, somewhere in the country. The world has changed. You know, there is social media now, but relationships are still the same. What would yeah. you tell them about how to make a living for themselves and not be just that guy that's really technically good, but still working a nine to five? What would you tell them? how to leverage some of these tools to make it go for it. I would say find some sort of differentiation point that um, makes you slightly different than what everybody else is doing. So whether if that is YouTube, like are you doing something that's different than what everybody's doing, but still kind of like also commercially viable, right? I think the true genius happens when you innovate in the lane that's already there. So, you know, very few people are going to have the ability 
to create a whole new thing. And we definitely need those people. We do need a guy that says, yeah, it's possible to go to space or yeah, it's possible to, to do this. We need those people, but those people are outliers, right? Most of us just need to be really, really good at what we do and then change the game slightly. So if you're the person that invented the, the phone, well, we can't all be that, but you could be the guy that invents the app for the phone. That's a lot easier than inventing the, the iPhone but you're actually probably affecting just as much change if you invented Twitter or Instagram versus inventing the entire phone. We all don't need to invent the phone. We just need to change the game slightly. It's like sports. Like everybody shot threes before Steph, but nobody shot Steph threes like that. Nobody took eight feet behind the line. He did that. Now the whole game is, is opened up like that. He didn't really do anything that different. You know, he's like, he didn't change. All he did was take something very basic, a fundamental that everyone skipped shooting because everybody just wanted to dunk. And he just did it slightly better. And all he did was move back four or five feet. All he did, he moved back 48 inches. And it changed a, a trillion dollar industry by him moving back 48 inches. That's what he did. I love what you're saying about being commercially viable too. Because some people will say like, I'm the best at doing this thing and I'm doing it different than anybody else. But they won't think about, okay, but who, who finds that valuable? And who's going to pay you to do that? Yeah. Well, some people don't care about that though, which is cool. But like, I do. <laughs> and if you want to do, if you want to make a living doing it, and if you don't want to have a nine to five at the same time, you kind of have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Selling out is cool if you sell out the right way. I'm all for selling out. As long <laughs> if you could sell out with your with your integrity intact, man, that's the that's the perfect scenario, right? And every successful entrepreneur has done it. Every big business that has done it. Most small businesses have done it. And any creative that you actually know about has done it in one way, shape, or form. I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the most recent repositioning of Mixed Brand and his interest in startups and investing. And so I started by asking about where that interest came from in the first place. I just started hanging out with a lot of people smarter than me because of how DJing went. Because I decided I wanted to own the DJing world of, like we were talking before, like the, 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 the smarter world, the entrepreneurial world, the ink and fast company world, because I saw where that was going. And I saw that the Gary V's of the world were becoming the new Jay-Z's of the world, right? And I saw how people were looking at them similarly. And I saw that I was living at that nexus point. So I started hanging out with a lot more people on that side of the fence because those people were also very into the same things I was doing. Like I could go talk to a 42-year-old venture capitalist dude and he's going to listen to half, at least half, if not more, of the same shit I listen to. No, he's not going to be me, right? He's not gonna, and also, similarly, he's not going to have like my sneaker collection but he's going to have some sneakers and there's a good chance if he has 10 pairs of sneakers, he might not even know, but two to three pairs of what he has might actually be really dope, but he might not even know, but like he'll have some context of like, Oh, when those Jordans came out, those were really like fresh. And like, it's just a different world. So I was able to speak to them because they understood me versus like 20 years ago, my grandparents, that whole story from before. And I was able to understand them because of how I approach my business and because how I was educated. So that just led to a lot of conversations. And that led to a lot of relationships and friends. And it's the same thing as DJ. Hey, you should know this guy. You should know this guy. You should know this guy. Some of these people hired me to DJ. Some of these people just wanted me to be their friend. Some of these people ended up putting me on panels and we did more thought leader things. And then some of these people were like, you should know this guy because he's working on this thing. And there you go. What about this decision to actually like actively invest in some of these companies, something that you, you didn't have a ton of experience with before? What mm -hmm. gave you the, the courage or the confidence to say, yeah, I'm going to do this now too? Future-proofing myself, you know, uh, learning about things, trusting my gut. I am still not a great numbers person. I'm not a bad numbers person, but I'm far from a great numbers person. I'm much more of a human person than a cap table person. You know, like I can definitely look and see if your idea financially doesn't make sense. And I definitely have smarter people than that who can look at that for me and be like, stay the fuck away from this person. But it's like dating, right? Like if, you, if I sit down with an a founder, right, and I vibe with them, I go off of that because I think you're going to figure shit out. Like if you're a good person and you can figure things out and you could do the things that you need to do to pivot and course correct and adjust, then I'm not too, too, too worried about your idea because Anchor, which I'm not part of anymore because they got bought by Spotify, but that was like a huge win for me uh, that is now going to be zero because of coronavirus. But thank you. Thank you, uh, coronavirus. <laughs> I think that that wasn't what it was when they got bought, when they started. It was like three, three, it wasn't even iterations. It was like a different thing. You know, and this company, the first company I invested in, Dot Dot Dash, they do amazing like experiential VR, robots, lasers, like 3D shit. They were a photo app, you know, but I knew the kid would figure it out. 
that's just what happens. It's, it, life is figure outable. This is what like, I tell my kid every day. This is how I approach friends. This is how I approach dating. Like, you know, if, if we go on a date and the restaurant's closed and you can't look at your phone and figure out somewhere else to go, like, and you freak out about it, like, we're not going on another one, right? You know, because like, what are you going to do when you get sick? What are you going to do when a pandemic hits? What are you going to do when you get fired? What are you going to do? Like, you just figure it out. It's not too different than DJing. And again, it's like really weird how my life is all tied back together. You know, I DJing, I play a song, it works, great. I stayed on that path. I play a song, it doesn't work. I have two choices. I could stay with it a little bit longer and play a couple other songs of that type and see if I can get people going in that path. Sometimes I do that, sometimes it works. But what happens is when I start to notice that, I can kind of like course correct and adjust. And it's the same thing now that people look at with analytics, with like marketing and social and all of that stuff. It's the same mind state, right? Do you want to, how do you, how do you fix that? And that's the same thing that I think a, a, a founder needs to do, right? Like your idea is not working. Cool. How many people are walking off the dance floor? Oh, okay, cool. Only a couple. Maybe we'll stay. We lost 10. Ooh, maybe we need to change this. But is it the song or is it the artist or is it the vibe or is it drinks? And moving that into this, is it the idea? Is it the branding? Is it the timing? You know, it's so similar. When you started diversifying yourself and future-proofing yourself in this world of tech, how did you think about reconciling or changing or evolving your brand? You know, a lot of people will think, well, I'm known for this over here. I can't do this because people know me for this over here. And it seems like you very quickly course adjusted to not worry about that. But uh, the main thing I did was like, A, I treated my, my, whatever your name is. I made sure it was a name that was future proof. I mean, well, my DJ name in college in Ohio used to be Mick Boogie, which was like a very late nineties name. So I dropped the boogie. I was like, I'm really lucky that my name was Mick and it can apply to different things. Whether it's speaking, whether it's whatever. And then I could add my last name back on for things like this. Right. And then I just chopped the last name off when it comes for more performance space, like endeavors. Right. So I was lucky. And if that, if my name wasn't Mick, I would have just found something else that worked right in that regard, you know, or a stage name or pseudonym, something that was future proof. Correct. A B like this is, and this is huge. I took the DJ off of my name. There's very rarely any media that has the word DJ. Occasionally people have it because they need to understand that that's what I'm doing. But even for that point, like if you look a lot of flyers and stuff on the online, I'll have them write DJ set by Mick or music by Mick. Uh, because I never wanted to, and again, it's going to happen sometimes. And I've learned to make peace with that. Cause at the end of the day, I am a DJ. So it's like, we get it. But like, if you remove that from it, then you're no longer pigeonholed by what box people put you in. And that also, again, is another example of me putting heart in front of the horse. I'm just always trying to like move it, move it down the direction of where I want it to go. So by removing perceived notions, perceived, you know, it was, it was much easier for me to do that. And it's the same thing with startups. If you are, if that photo app company was named, like, I don't know, I'm making this up, but if they were named photo, <laughs> like, right. Or like best photo or like photo dot IO, you know, you got to rebrand the whole thing like seven times. But if your company was named, I'm making this up like Zenith, there's already a Zenith. Like what the fuck is a Zenith? What the fuck is a goop? What the fuck? You know, like you, if you have a name, it saves you on the rebranding it, it, because you don't know how people are going to use your product. They don't know what you're going to become. So if you have a name that is very fluid, you're able to transition and, and stay the course versus having to spend all that time, effort, money, perception, uh, effort into, into rebranding who you are. And that for me was, was huge. And I tell DJs that, I tell founders that, you know, everybody, because you don't know where life is going to go. And so the more things you can do to future-proof yourself from not just a business perspective and a financial perspective, but also from a brand perspective, because if your brand's not right, you can forget about money in, in business, right? You have to have the brand stuff first and foremost in order to ever think about future-proofing yourself as far as the other aspects. What about the people that are following along and they're like, I know Mick, I know what he's about, but now he's talking about startups and stuff. Like, did you th think or worry about them not understanding that you're evolving or changing? No, I mean, to an extent, I still try to stay relevant to everybody in certain ways. But I think, A, first of all, younger consumers of culture understand the need for business and future-proofing themselves more than ever. Jay-Z started talking about good credit and everyone's like, oh, yeah, right? Mm -hmm. Like your parents tell you to wear a nice shirt. You don't want to do it. David Stern told the NBA to start getting dressed up. Nobody want to do it. Jay-Z said 15 years ago, stop wearing sweatsuits and start wearing button-ups. Everybody started doing it. It's how things are explained to people and how things are received culturally. So you can, people started being much more of the younger generation accepting to like longevity, all of that stuff. And then on the other side, like 
you know, my audience is not a 19, 20 year old audience. I can do that. I have that. I could kill that. But my audience is more so like the people who are the probably either people who like me now who came from either where I came from or they wish they followed their creative. So I hear from so many people way more successful than you and I and, and so many people you're probably going to interview combined who have told me, man, I really wish I would have did what you did. And I'm just like, bro, we can trade any day you want. But like, to me, that me, that's really cool to hear. And so like, so that tells me they're getting something from my weird little piece of the story. And then of course I'm getting stuff from, from their piece of the story as well too. So yeah, I don't really worry about that because I think that today's youth is much more savvy than we ever were ever. And I think today's middle-aged audience of which I guess I'm now a member of is much more culturally relevant and youth-minded than this demographic has ever been. So it's awesome if you're me, if you're you, if you're a brand who understands both sides because you could live infinitely in that space. I really enjoyed this conversation because it's always fun to hear a good origin story, especially when someone is at the front end of a trend. And I loved hearing how Mick got into mixing long before the internet made things easy. I think a lot of us can relate to Mick's story about never being the most X or the best Y, but instead always living at the intersection of X, Y, and whatever else. There's a ton of value in being at the nexus of a few different skill sets or points of view, and Mick is evidence of just that. I highly recommend checking out the full summertime mixtape that Mick released just a couple of weeks ago with DJ Jazzy Jeff, and the link to that is in the show notes. In fact, I'd check out all of his past mixes, as well as his Swimming Pools mixtapes. You can find all those links at mick.co or in our show notes here. You can also find a transcript for this episode and a link to our private Facebook group where we can talk about this episode as well. Thanks to Mick for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Brian Skeel for mixing this show and creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at me at jklaus and let me know or find me on Instagram at jklaus. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next week. Sonic Universe.